which means that, um, that me and Slayton are two staff people with RUF. Um, it's literally our job to be here and um, to hang out with you and to talk about life with God together. So uh, if we don't know you, we would love to, a chance to get to know you. Uh, special welcome to you if this is your first time or your first time in a while at RUF. We're so grateful that you're here. There's a basketball game and all kinds of other things going on tonight that sounds a lot more fun on paper. So thanks for being here. Um, this semester, so part of what we do in RUF is, um, you know, we sing, we pray together, we hear stories, we enjoy each other, and we also open up the Bible and um, explore it for its wisdom. And uh, we've been exploring this book this semester um, called Ecclesiastes. It's in the Old Testament, and it is a ancient book of wisdom, really exploring um, what does life look like without God. Like if you got everything you ever wanted um, and there was no God, would that be enough to satisfy us? And um, part of what is great about Ecclesiastes is that it's really honest uh, about how meaningless life can feel. You know, we go through these through our rhythms of our days and sometimes when we step back and look at it, we just go like, does anything good last? Um, sometimes, you know, th- this word comes back again and again through Ecclesiastes that everything is meaningless or vanity or chasing after vapor. Um, life, according to Ecclesiastes, is kind of like the toilet paper on the quad, you know, that one single piece of windswept, wet toilet paper that's flapping upon a tree, reminding you that there was once this glorious victory and celebration, but now has passed and is just dangling there upon the tree. Um, That's kind of what life can feel like. And so um, Ecclesiastes has been a source of wisdom and of comfort um, for people for thousands of years. But one of the most profound examples um, of what makes life feel so meaningless and hard is the reality that our world is full of oppression and injustice and corruption. And that uh, injustice and oppression have reigned throughout human history and reign today. And so even when we're, you ever had that experience like you're enjoying like a nice lunch, you're like, I'm going to treat myself. And you go to Village Juice, get the, the expensive smoothie. And then like you pull out your phone and it's like, you know, you turn on, you look, flip up the news and you're like, ah, well, I can't even enjoy the smoothie now. Um, bad things are happening throughout the world. Um, listen to what uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes says here in Ecclesiastes 3 and 4. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed, a time for the computer to be charged and a time for it to pass away. Um, My wife doesn't say that my phone died. She says it feels too violent. So she says my phone is flat. Which I appreciate that. All right. Um, I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. 
all go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. You're welcome for this ministry of encouragement uh, right here before spring break. Um, let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into this passage and see what God has for us. Lord, I thank you for um, my friends who are here, um, for these sisters and brothers gathered in this place. Lord, we give you thanks um, that you know us, that you've made us, um, that you know each of us intimately. You know all of our story, even the parts that we hide, even the parts that we don't know ourselves. And more than that, Lord, you love us. Lord, you love every single person in this room and on this campus deeply. And Lord, we long for that love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, um, you would be with us now as we open your word, as we explore the reality of injustice. Um, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us hope um, for the future for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our systems, for our communities. Um, give us the hope of the resurrection, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, so fair warning, um, this talk is going to be a, a little bit more dense than normal. Um, sometimes you just like to have a nice sandwich, especially if you're Joe, whose guilty pleasure is sandwiches. Not a guilty pleasure, just a pleasure. Um, my guilty pleasure was crock gibbets. And I will accept any and all if you give them to me. Um, but sometimes you have a nice sandwich. Sometimes you have a nice salad. Sometimes you have a nice meatloaf. And so this is going to be a little bit more of a meatloaf vibe tonight. So really what I want to do with you is look um, at the reality of injustice. Um, how this, the writer of Ecclesiastes puts this in pretty stark terms. Um, and then see if... Um, the Christian faith has any good news for us, okay? So the problem is that injustice is an enduring reality. Um, in, in the passage, you know, in, uh, in verse 16, he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. That there is a reality of corruption. That when people are in positions of power, they often manipulate the system to keep power for themselves. And then in, in chapter four, he talks about oppression. Um, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressor was power. Um, those who have power consistently victimize those without power. This is just a reality of human history. Um, the theologian who I love, his name is Carl Ellis. Uh, he puts it really easily. He says, oppression is simply sin plus power. When sin and power combine, then there is oppression. Uh, we see this in really small ways. Like I have three little girls. 
When they were younger, if I gave one of them a cookie and said to share the other, if I gave them three cookies and said, share these with your sisters, they would invariably look at all three cookies and see which of the cookies was the biggest or the most beautiful and most enticing. And then they would keep that cookie and then they would give the other cookie to their sisters. Um, when we have power, even though the power over the cookie choice, we almost always use it for ourselves. But we see it in, in big ways as well. Um, I've told some of y'all, and some of y'all um, donated very generously to my friend Hanan. Um, Hanan is from Syria. She's from Aleppo. Um, so if you've heard about that place on the news, that's, where, that's her home. It was also just devastated by an earthquake after basically being destroyed by war. But um, Hanan and her kids are here in this country because um, her husband and their dad... Um, one day, his brother knocked on the door, and he answered it, and his brother had joined ISIS, and he said, uh, you know, join, join with us in this fight. And when he refused, he shot him on sight uh, in the doorway in front of his family. And then Hanan and her four young children, one of her children who was uh, basically a baby, her name's Yemen, um, they went to Turkey and they lived in a refugee camp in Turkey for eight years where they were despised and treated really, really poorly um, by the Turkish folks that were running their camp and they lived in squalor. Now they're here in the U.S. They've been resettled as refugees here, but they live in, in Winston-Salem and they have received so many blessings, but she can't possibly afford to live where they're living and so they're needing to move now somewhere where they can afford her life is hard. She's failed the driving, the written driving test like eight times because she just, she doesn't, she, her English isn't up to, to snuff. And so she can't even get her family around. When you're without power, things crash upon you again and again. And this all started because of ISIS, you know, um, who they beheaded folks, mutilated folks, burned them alive. And so sometimes we think about oppression and we think, yes, that's, people are doing things far away or long ago. And our hearts break for it. But I, I wanted to read, this is going to be a little bit intense. I'm just, as if that wasn't intense. Um, I want to read a little bit to you from uh, an article called uh, When ISIS Ran the American South. And um, so this is a little intense. So like if... Uh, if you need to check out for that for a minute, that's okay. But in this, um, this, this writer is talking about the reality of lynchings in, in the U.S. And um, he talks particularly about um, this a lynching that happened in 1916 in Waco uh, for a man named Jesse Washington, who was a black man who was lynched by a mob in Waco, Texas. Um, he confessed under police interrogation to murdering a white woman, which he very likely didn't do, but was coerced into confessing. So I'm going to read this. It's going to be intense, okay? But there is a reason. Washington was tried for murder in Waco and in a courtroom filled with furious locals. He entered a guilty plea and was quickly sentenced to death. After his sentence was pronounced, he was dragged out of the court by observers and lynched in front of Waco City Hall. Over 10,000 spectators, including city officials and police, gathered to watch the attack, including city officials and police. There was a celebratory atmosphere at the event, and many children attended during their lunch hour from school. Members of the mob mutilated Washington, and I will leave out the details there, 
and hung him over a bonfire. He was repeatedly lowered and raised over the fire for about two hours. And after the fire was extinguished, his charred torso was dragged through the town and parts of his body were sold as souvenirs. A professional photographer took pictures as the event unfolded, providing rare imagery of a lynching in progress. The pictures were printed and sold as postcards in Waco. That was not the Middle Ages. That was at the writing of this 99 years ago in Texas. The killers were not berserk jihadis. They were the people of Waco, Texas, including the leadership of the city. Um, he goes on to say that he found one of the postcards of this, and sure, sure enough, there it was, the charred corpse of a young black man tied to a blister tree in the heart of the Texas Bible Belt. Next to the burned body, young white men could be seen smiling and grinning, seemingly jubilant about their front row seats in a carnival of death. One of them sent a picture postcard home. This is the barbecue we had last night. My picture is to the left with a cross over it. Your son, Joe. Um, now, the question I have, that, 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 that wasn't far away or really even that long ago. The question I have for us is, in Waco, Texas in 1916, how many of this, the 10,000 spectators do you think were regular attenders of a church? Like, all? The vast majority, obviously, right? Um, or how many of the people there would consider themselves to be Christians? Probably every single one. Who were actually lynching someone who was almost guaranteed to also have attended church and considered himself a Christian. Um, so were they fake Christians? Were all of those 10,000 people gathered just not really serious about their faith? No. What they were doing was they were embracing the mingling of their sin with power and therefore were oppressing others. The results were evil. And in the church, I mean, you know, it goes without saying that the church has perpetuated all kinds of things. Racism, you know, is just one example, white supremacy. But the way the church has ranked sexual sins put people through harmful conversion therapy, excluded outsiders, minimized and demonized women, abused children, and neglected the poor. The reality is, when we have power, we just don't see correctly. Like We don't see in reality whether we are religious people or not. This came home to me a few years ago. Um, I was watching Monday Night Football with some friends, and during halftime, there was a news bulletin that um, this police officer who had been charged um, with murder for um, killing an unarmed black man named Mike, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, that it was found that there wasn't enough um, evidence to indict him. And I remember thinking at the time, you guys probably are aware of Ferguson. This was like when you guys were in middle school, high school. Uh, may, may have heard about Mike Brown. I remember thinking at the time, oh, that's interesting. Like, I would have thought that there would have been more evidence for that. And then I went back to watching Monday Night Football. I was politely interested. And after the game, I remember getting online and seeing that many of my friends of color, friends who are Christians like me and in the same denomination and tradition as me, like this, my people, like people that I was legitimately close with, 
um, angry, grieving, hurt. And the thing is, I had always thought of myself having grown up in a, like a racially segregated place that like I had meaningful relationships with black and brown people um, and was close. And it really shook me in that moment where I realized I am not the fact that I didn't respond viscerally to this verdict shows that I'm missing a core reality that my sisters and brothers are experiencing. And I'm just not seeing, I'm not living in reality the way that they are because I didn't have to. So I, I say all that to, to set, to set this stage. Should we just discard the Christian faith when it comes to issues of justice? considering um, the track record. Or if you're here and you're a Christian, like are issues of justice even, an, even something that you should care about, that you should be involved in? And what I want to do is I want to share five reasons, or I just said this is going to be a little bit more meatloafy. I want to share five reasons why if you're a Christian, you must care about oppression and injustice. And you don't hear me saying that you as a Christian must do anything very often. If you're a Christian, you must care about justice and also why justice-loving people should also care about Christianity. Okay? First is this. The writer in Ecclesiastes says in 18 to 21, which Caroline's on the spot, okay? He starts saying that under the sun in this world that humans and animals are functionally the same, Right? Um, we all come from the dust and we all return to the dust. And from a purely like naturalistic view of things, that's true, that humans and animals are the same kind of thing. But the Bible says that humans are actually much more than animals. In our core, we share um, uh, uh, something about being created in the, nat- the natural order. But the Bible says that human beings are created in God's image. Therefore... Each human, regardless of age, race, sex, gender expression, sexual orientation, ability or disability, nationality, religion, socioeconomic, whatever, is full of dignity, beauty, and incalculable worth. Like if, you, if you're taking your mind back to that scene in Waco, it was, a, it was an abject refusal that that human being was created in God's image. Believing in the God of the Bible should necessarily make you all value all people more than you did before. There is not a view of humanity that is higher than the Christian understanding that God made all people in his image. That human beings are the only thing that reflects the basic godness of reality. So that, that's, that's first. Um, So if you're a Christian, you have to care about people, especially people that are vulnerable because they're made in God's image. And if you you should take Christianity seriously because Christianity has the highest possible view of humans. But second is this. um, We need to have an absolute basis for human rights. We need something that we can all agree upon when it comes to evaluating rights for human beings. There is actually not an international consensus on many things. If you think about around the world and how we understand human rights, there's not international consensus on the roles of women. 
There's not international consensus on sexuality. There's not international consensus on labor laws or free speech or the role of government. There's not international consensus on war, obviously. There's not international consistent, uh, consensus on capital punishment or climate change, all these things. Human rights are not, like the way that, that, if, that Western people understand human rights in our moment, that's not obvious to everyone. Like not everyone agrees and has the same set of human, basic human rights. Um, and the question is, should the West impose all these ideas on others? Should, as Western people, should we say, you should actually understand human rights the same way that we do? Um, haven't we done enough colonizing to not colonize our morality on the rest of the world, which is always shifting? We need an absolute basis for human rights. We don't have it. What's beautiful about the Christian faith is it offers that to us. So if you think about our brother, Dr. King, um, and his work, right? I think universally people are like pro Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as it should be. Dr. King was a minister. Dr. King wasn't just a civil rights leader and a brilliant uh, speaker and writer, even though he was all those things. He was a Christian. So when he spoke, he was not saying segregation is bad or unhealthy or bad public policy. Dr. King held the Bible and said, white supremacy is evil and it's a sin and it displeases God. He stood in a place of absolute moral objectivity from God's perspective and was able to say that white supremacy wasn't just harmful, but is sinful, that it offended God. So when, he, when we come to the scripture, um, we're presented with the Ten Commandments, right? Which have stood the test of time as a basis for morality. Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments very simply by saying that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and spirit and strength. And that you should love your neighbor as yourself. That that is the basis for human existence and human rights. Um, Dr. Cornell West spoke a couple of months ago on campus. He was amazing. If you got a chance to hear him. Um, but he simply says, justice is what love looks like in public. Oppression is a withholding of God's love from your neighbor. So if you're a Christian, you should care about justice because it's God's law, which is a, an expression of his character, compels us to love God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And if you care about justice, you should take Christianity seriously because it, take, it provides a sound basis for love in public. Thirdly, God is a judge, according to the scripture. In uh, verse 17, he says, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Part of what he's saying there is that nothing escapes God's judgment. No matter how well covered up it is or accepted, nothing escapes God's judgment. Psalm 140. You have that one as well, Caroline? No, that's okay. Um, Psalm 140 basically says that God will maintain the cause of the afflicted and execute justice for the needy. There is a cosmic person who can and will judge all things. 
Uh, DeRay McKesson, who's a, um, a guy, an important person. He said that love holds us accountable. Evil by its nature is not accountable. And accountability at its core is justice. Christians have to care about the vulnerable and the oppressed because God is our judge. Um, And people that care about justice should care about Christianity because it presents a God who will not let anything that is done to the vulnerable pass in the end. But here's the true power. This is the fourth point. The true power in Christianity for justice. And if you spaced out for the rest of it, this, this is a good part. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus brings about a justice that is actually able to reconcile people and doesn't create new oppressors. We've seen it happen again and again when, when, a, when a vulnerable or oppressed group um, becomes liberated, a new oppressor, and often that group becomes oppressive themselves when they receive power. But the central act in the Christian story is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. What that means is this. Jesus was God himself and became a human being, took on human flesh, and lived a life of complete love to God and his neighbor. That summary of the law, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself, that was his entire life. And he did it beautifully and fully and perfectly. Yet he was a falsely accused victimized by a corrupt and oppressive governmental structure and violent religious rulers. He was a brown man lynched by an angry mob after a mock trial. And he was nailed to a torture device and murdered and three days later was raised from the dead and walked out of the tomb. And because in that act, he was bearing the injustice and violence of humans who every time our sin mixes with power, we oppress others. He took on the violence of his enemies so that he could overcome it and offer them life and freedom. Jesus is the one who said, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. So now the scripture says in Romans chapter three, that God is both just and the justifier of those who know Jesus. What he's saying is that God is both the judge of all the earth and the one who can justify us and make us right with him that we can escape his judgment. Justice is carried out for our sin. It is not forgotten, but it's paid for by Jesus. Meaning that we are never so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace. But we're never so good that we're beyond the need of that grace. Like in in chapter four, there it says the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. Jesus, the one who was oppressed for his people, is the one who promises to wipe every tear from every eye. And he can. Meaning this in Jesus, we have total justice against oppressors. Because God will judge. And total empathy for victims because God's heart identifies with the oppressed. But abundant hope for both the oppressed and the oppressor. The good news of Jesus is good news of reconciliation. That he makes people right with one another because he allows us to repent. He offers us a new way of being. 
reconciliation between us and God and reconciliation between people. And if you want to know more about that, you can read John Perkins. Highly recommend him. All right, we're getting to the end here. Because of that life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which can create a justice that doesn't make new oppressors and actually reconciles people, Jesus makes us humble and suspicious of ourselves. Jesus can actually put people in a place where even when they have power, they become suspicious of their own motives and actually can begin to use their power for the flourishing of others without power. Everyone who comes to Jesus comes knowing that they are a sinner. And that they're only right with God because God has taken our violent thoughts and words and deeds onto himself and forgiven us freely and fully. Therefore, a Christian must never believe that they are superior to anyone, regardless of race, sex, behavior, socioeconomic status, or any other identifying factor. Truly embracing Jesus leads a person to a deeper suspicion of their own motives and a willingness to learn from others and accept them. So, if you are here and you are a Christian, the invitation here is for you to do justice and love mercy. So many Christians feel purposeless and confused about our life with God. Why does it not feel more full? I don't know what to do with my life. And often it can be that we're missing that purpose because we aren't near enough to the heart of God whose heart is with the oppressed, the afflicted, the poor, the downcast, and the victimized. God's heart loves the oppressed. And if we aren't meaningfully involved, then it's no wonder that we miss God's heart. But the good news is he always invites us back to it again. Today, I was talking with some faculty, Christian faculty, and one of the professors was telling a story about how he was on a walk and he encountered this man and this man approached him and he said, hi, my name's Paul. I just got out of prison. Can you help me? Do you have anything? And so this guy, you know, he teaches at Wake. He's a person of power. He took some money out of his wallet and gave it to him. It felt like a lot of money to the man who received it and it overcame him. And he said, you know, I was just starting to think that God had forgotten about me. Now, what I don't want you to hear in that is you'll have power and so you'll get to be a blessing to everyone. For that professor, that was a a divine encounter for him. To see himself in this man and to identify with him. If you heard Brian Stevenson last week, I love so much of what he was saying about that. He said, I I don't work to save my clients. I work to save myself. That I'm just as broken as they are and I need hope for a future like they do. So if you're here and you're a Christian, there's an invitation into the life of doing justice and loving mercy. But if you're not a Christian, but you are passionate about equity and justice, you know, do you have a, a basis for universal human rights? Do you have stable moral absolutes, not just cultural ones? Is your view of human beings as high as the Bible's? And most importantly, do you know a justice that's available for both the oppressed and the oppressor? 
That's the justice that Jesus offers. And he invites you to know him now, to experience him now, not just to like follow a religion, but to have him come into your life and begin to animate you in the way of love in public. You can be open to Jesus, but skeptical of the church. That's fine. But like, like we need you in order to do this work. Okay, so three, I've, I've talked long enough. Three test cases for reflection. This is just for us to reflect on as we go. Some of you are considering uh, a future in education or in law. Um, everybody in this room is going to have power at some point. Some of you will have significant power. If you're considering a, a education or law, um, and a few years ago in Chattanooga, uh, we were working um, there um, with a community development group and learned that in, t- in the state of Tennessee, lawmakers use third grade literacy rates in low income communities of color to determine how much money should be allocated to correctional facilities. So here's what that means. In Tennessee, the way they determine how much money they should use to build prisons is on third grade literacy rates in low income communities of color. Meaning, if you can't read in the third grade, they're building prison for you. Okay. If you know Jesus, if you have been saved by his blood, if you are an enemy of God that has now been reconciled to him by his free grace and one who has been called into a diverse body of women and men all over the world and throughout time, how can you respond to that? Because it's not just Tennessee. We're throwing Tennessee under the bus because they're over there. Children need to be educated. They need to be fed before they can be educated. Their families need to be supported. The good news of Jesus needs to be shared with them. Legislation needs to be changed. And if you're in that community, which I guarantee you that you will be in a community like that, God has placed you there to steward your power well for the flourishing of all your community's people because they were all created in God's image. Okay, if you're considering medicine, I was talking to my friend the other day who's finishing her fellowship in uh, OBGYN. And she was telling me about her friend. She re- said, my friend, when she graduates, she really wants to work in Winston-Salem, but there's not a lot of jobs. And she was talking about her friend who has been in her OB practice for, a, for over a decade and was up for a promotion and a raise. But she was denied it. She's an OB now. She was denied it and passed over because she had taken maternity leave. Okay. She literally did the thing with her body. She, del- she, she produced a child from her own body. Okay. I think this makes you pretty like expert level if you're an OB and you have a baby. She was passed over because she had taken maternity leave. How might you function differently if you are in a practice? How might you think about the role of a woman in your practice? And if you're considering business, um, Winston-Salem is one of the least economically mobile cities in America. Wherever you are born in Winston-Salem is almost always where you will end up. 
you are likely to live in a place where that's a reality to you. And my question is, how will the poor in your community inform your work? Not just as you think thoughts about them, but as you meaningfully engage with what it's like to not have economic mobility in your place. How will it change what you do? Okay, that was a lot. Um, Let me pray. Lord, um, it is a joy and an honor to be in this room surrounded by so many beautiful and capable human beings who were created by you in your beauty and whom you redeem by your grace. And Lord, um, we want a better way and we often just don't know how. We want better options, but the options that are available to us seem so enticing. And so Lord, we just need you to give us imagination to show us something deeper and truer and more beautiful, that your heart, that you remember the poor, that you care about the oppressed and the vulnerable, that that is who you are. And that's why you have given us new life. Lord, we want to be about that. Lord, we don't want to use the things that you've given us just to satisfy ourselves. And Lord, we need you to give us the strength to say no to the wide and easy path. And instead say yes to the narrow road and the narrow gate that leads to life. Lord, we don't want to be purposeless, just trying to figure out what the best option is for us. We want to be engaged with making things better with seeing ourselves more clearly. Lord, I grieve that like I I couldn't weep with my sisters and brothers who were weeping. I just didn't know to because I didn't have to. And Lord, I'm thankful for that moment of repentance. And I pray that you would grant that to us along with new life. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. We got one more song.